soft power and COVID-19. EU approaches to China and Australia's relations with Southeast Asia. Welcome to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we hear from some of the authors of Aspie's recent publication, After COVID-19, Australia, the Region and Multilateralism. They discuss the EU's relationship with China and the potential for cooperation between the EU and Australia and geopolitics in Southeast Asia amid rising US-China tensions. We start this episode with a conversation between Lisa Sharland and Professor Caitlin Byrne, Director of the Griffith Asia Institute. They discuss how soft power is being used by the US and China and opportunities for middle powers to use soft power in multilateral settings. Caitlin, thank you so much for joining the ASPE podcast today. It's great to be with you, Lisa. Thanks for inviting me on. So this provides an excellent opportunity for us to follow up on a contribution that you made to our After COVID Volume 2 publication, which was focused on Australia, the region and multilateralism. And as part of that publication, uh, you provided a chapter that looks at competence in crisis, the new marker of soft power in a chaotic world. First of all, I really enjoyed the chapter. Uh, so I thought it'd be great to have you on and have a conversation about it. But I really wanted to start with what might seem quite a basic question, but I think it's a really important one to illustrate what we're talking about. And that is, what do we mean by soft power? And can you tell us a little bit about your assessment of soft power or the soft power balance sheet, I should say, as it relates to COVID-19? Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Great question to start with, because it's not always that clear what we are talking about when we're talking about soft power. But essentially, and I'm using uh, Harvard professor Joseph Nye really coined the term and, and gave us a way of talking about it. But of course, soft power is nothing new. But essentially, it is the ability to get others to do what you'd like them to do. Um, through attraction, through the influence that comes from attraction and ideas. And often that's found in the currencies of culture and values of policies, particularly foreign policies, but increasingly domestic policies in the way governments and societies behave at home is important, as well as the way their institutions work. So I mentioned it's been around forever. You know, nations or political actors have always really sought to cultivate the environment that they're in and to cultivate a positive perception of them in that environment. So there's nothing new um, with this, but certainly I think in a post-COVID world, we're starting to see the concept become a little uh, sharper or or come into view in a different way. And I think in a post-COVID world, we're seeing different countries pick up on the opportunity to engage in influencing others and using messages to do that. But actually, I think it's much more fundamental. I think it comes back to how you behave, how you contribute to the global environment, the kind of story and narrative you're able to tell in that environment uh, and the way that you build relationships. Um, So, for example, I think for Australia, we've probably seen an opportunity to build our soft power by coming out of this uh, COVID-19 pandemic in relatively good shape, comparatively speaking. So being able to manage this crisis has been quite critical for our soft power in the world. 
there are a handful of nations that fall into that category. Uh, and there are some other great powers that haven't done so well, that tried to use the messaging opportunity. But when you look at how they've managed their behaviour through this crisis, it doesn't play out well from a soft power perspective. And I think to move on to that, perhaps uh, one of the, the powers that you're referring to there was the United States. And of course, since this, this chapter that you wrote was published, only in the last sort of week, we've had the news that President Trump has contracted COVID-19, uh, as have a number of White House staffers and uh, congressional representatives. Similarly, uh, his behaviour has been going against medical advice in terms of limiting his contact with other people. What type of impact do you think that this is likely to have around the globe in terms of America's soft power, particularly in this period in the run-up to the US election? A great question. And I think uh, much of the world has looked on in, in dismay, if not disbelief, at some of the behaviours coming out of the White House and certainly the way that President Trump has been behaving over the last couple of, of days, if not months. And I think this is where there is a challenge with soft power and I think there are all sorts of tensions bound up in this concept, one of them being it's really easy to fall into the trap of getting caught up in the politics of display when it comes to soft power. Uh, and we're certainly seeing that from the Trump administration where soft power tends to be more about the spectacle that you can create uh, than it is about the kind of competency that you can deliver, where it's more about reality TV sound bites, uh, again, than building relationships, than looking to opportunities for collaboration or cooperation, particularly in the global sphere. I think it's worth remembering too that Trump probably is playing much more to his domestic base than he is to a global audience. And again, we see that tension play out and we see that play out in China as well. So, so all of these factors complicate the soft power landscape all that bit more. Uh, I think that we will see, and we have seen the US declining uh, in the rankings, for example, and, and you can question the way the rankings are put together as well. We've certainly seen a gradual decline in the US's global soft power positioning since Trump came into the presidency, and I think we're going to see that continue. No, I think, um, I think quite a few people would agree with that assessment. More broadly, what impact do you think that's going to have on the global response to or, or the global initiatives to respond to COVID-19? I mean, we've seen some of that play out over the last sort of six months or so, but where do you see things going with sort of the positioning of the US at the moment? And you also mentioned there sort of China's power play on some of these issues as well, which they tend to, I think, at least in my assessment, take a very different approach to how you might use soft power as opposed to the United States, of course. Well, that's right. And I think it's really hard to see how this is going to play out. Um, certainly, we've seen the role of institutions undermined as a result of the way that China and the US have been playing off uh, the potential of COVID-19 to build their influence, not necessarily through a, through a soft power uh, way. And I think certainly in the case of China, and we can talk about that in more detail. In fact, you know, we're seeing a much more aggressive play on uh, the use of messaging and the, and the sort of influence piece. What I'd like to see, so I guess there's a, a question here about are we looking at the world as it is or how we'd like it to be, but I, I hope that we're going to see others in the global landscape play a much more active role within institutions. Uh, now that 
that offers an opportunity for countries like Australia to build their diplomatic agenda. Uh, and we've seen Maurice Payne, Foreign Minister Maurice Payne this week, um, taking off and, and spending the week in Japan and, and heading to Singapore to build some of those other relationships. So I think we are going to see minilateralism at work. We're going to see different forms of alignments, of coalition building, hopefully to shift the strategic weight of smaller and middle powers uh, to build influence. And, and one of the things that I would argue is that soft power rests at the very core of our diplomatic capacity. Uh, and we often forget that. We sometimes see it as a bit of an add-on, as, as things that happens, as something that happens through cultural exchange only or international education. It's a much bigger puzzle. Uh, and at its core sits our competency and our capability in, in diplomacy. Um, so the challenge there is if we want to be more active, we're going to have to actually resource our diplomatic efforts and our, our architecture in order to, to actually deliver on that capability. I think that's a, a really good point. In fact, this, this week at ASPE, we hosted an event with uh, US Ambassador Culverhouse here and he pushed back against the view that perhaps Australia was a middle power, noting the considerable influence that Australia could wield. And I think that was an interesting point, given we've seen the developments this year in terms of Australia's engagement in institutions, as you were referring to, uh, the work of the foreign minister. I think it's been interesting this week. We've also seen, um, a, again, Australia's, Australia's co-signed onto a statement in the General Assembly's third committee uh, with 38 other countries um, expressing concern about human rights in Xinjiang and also in Hong Kong. Um, and I thought maybe if we could conclude on that point a little bit um, around the context of multilateral settings and also the engagement we've seen, not only from Australia, but also from China and the US in those settings. And What's your view, I guess, on, on what role does soft power have to play within those institutions and particularly around issues of human rights? Um, how might soft power come into uh, influencing uh, perceptions that other countries may have about the role or, or the um, standing of countries in those debates? Mm. I think this is a really critical point and again this is where diplomacy sits at the core of what soft power, how soft power might be generated and then ultimately wielded on the global stage and I think it comes through for a country like Australia in particular and that's where I've really been spending my time thinking, uh, it comes through in the way that we can lead debates, set agendas, build coalitions and build capacity. So I think the way that, that Australia operates in those multilateral settings speaks volumes and, and really delivers into a soft power profile. And let's not forget coming out of that term where Australia was uh, sitting on the UN Security Council as a temporary member, you know, some of the work that happens behind the scenes in holding the pen and helping other delegations kind of build the case and advocating for the case and in, in being influential and persuasive in the way that we advocate for better policies and better global policy, that's really where we have the opportunity to wield soft power. It doesn't happen um, by refusing to be at the table. It doesn't happen by withdrawing from the institution and that's what we're seeing from some of the big powers. Equally, it doesn't necessarily happen by stacking those institutions to our, into our favour or into, um, you know, to, to, to push forward a political agenda um, that, that might sort of dominate the narrative. So I think it's really about being open 
two perspectives, being able to advocate in a way that brings others to you, um, doesn't impose your ideas onto them. And it's really challenging and you can't do it if you don't have people on the ground. You can't do it if you don't have that really specialised expertise in, in negotiation and in relationship building. Um, so I think that's where there's an opportunity for Australia. I, I think we have to be really situationally aware of how others are going to play in institutions, how they are going to potentially stack the room uh, and, and work around that. Now, when you mentioned... Uh, the General Assembly statement, you know, we've seen counter statements to that too, with the likes of Pakistan and Cuba leading leading those counter statements with the support of countries like North Korea, Syria. Those are countries that that are not going to draw people to them. They're not they're not particularly attractive when it comes to human rights and freedoms. We've got to be able to present that message that human rights matter. Um, that they are important, that they work to a government's advantage and that they deliver better outcomes. I think that's that's the challenge. And I, and I think that goes back to what the, the point that you make in your article about a lot of this starts at home and the way that um, leaders engage with their sort of population sort of locally, um, which I think was a really pertinent point. Yeah, pertinent for us at universities too because I think, you know, particularly international students, so important to us, so important to our relationships in the world. Taking care of them through a time that's really difficult at home is going to be absolutely critical. So I think we do have to look at ourselves first. You simply can't get away with this by separating what you do in a multilateral institution from how your institutions operate at home. That, that doesn't work. So it all goes to credibility and I think um, credibility and legitimacy play into this space far more than popularity, um, popularity of message or spectacle. And that doesn't just happen, you have to invest in it. Thanks so much for joining us, Caitlin. And I would suggest to everyone listening to check out the chapter as part of our After, after COVID Volume 2. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Now, Bart Hogaveen speaks to research interns Alexandra Pasco and Daria Impiombato about the EU's approach to China and where the opportunities lie for greater cooperation between Australia and the EU. Um, Alex and Daria, uh, thanks for joining us um, for this podcast, um, talking about EU, Australia and China. And you both have written a, uh, a piece in the uh, After COVID Volume 2, talking about how the EU and Australia should deal with China in the post-COVID world. Now, my first question is, um, assuming that um, um, our Minister for Foreign Affairs, Maurice Payne, will be uh, calling with uh, her counterpart from the EU, Joseph Borrell, next week, what would be, um, would be her main message to him? I think uh, the main aim should be that of selling a better or a stronger partnership between the EU and Australia. Um, so sort of focusing on all the areas of common interests, both uh, in terms of global issues, but also um, in the Indo-Pacific region. Yeah. So could, I mean, could you give some examples of, let's say, what are those areas of common interest between EU and Australia in the Indo-Pacific? Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of sort of shared experience and sort of knowledge sharing that could take place between the EU and Australia in terms of approaches to dealing with China. So... A lot of the things that we see on the agenda in Australia, like foreign interference, um, sort of 5G infrastructure, supply chain diversification post-COVID, they are things that the EU is confronting. 
And so I think there's a lot of value that can be um, drawn out there by sort of sharing approaches to those issues. But also backing each other up in multilateral forums like it has happened in the past and like creating the basis for future collaboration. Where have they been backing up each other in multilateral forums? I think it centres on quite a broad conception of interests and values in sort of revolving around um, like the preservation of the rules-based international order. I think both the EU's and Australia's strength Uh, security and prosperity sort of stem from that order and everybody playing by those rules. So being able to uphold them in different scenarios, whether that's with regards to trade or maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific is important to both of us. So so what would be, what what would would the EU be able kind of to offer Australia in that sense in in protecting or maintaining, call it a regional rules-based order in the the Indo-Pacific? What do they have to offer? Well, Europe definitely has bigger bargaining chips and the bigger sort of geopolitical arena. What are the bargaining <laughs> chips of the European Union? Tell us. <laughs> it, it's, it's a strong economic actor. Mm-hmm. As uh, we mentioned in our book, its main power is economic because yeah. uh, that's its realm really in, within the EU. And so when the EU backs Australia, for instance, when Australia decides to call out China on the origins of of the pandemic, China would be less willing, I think, to backfire because it has more at stake than if Australia acts by itself. This this case where um, the EU and Australia kind of jointly work together to bring this this resolution to the World Health Assembly and and kind of get consensus um, agreement for um, an investigation to um, the pandemic um, is kind of generally seen, I think, maybe an exceptional or incidental uh, situation where, call it the two countries, if that's not that's factually correct, managed to kind of work together. I mean, what would be other examples where, where really kind of the EU and Australia would find itself in practical arrangements or practical forms of cooperation? I think it's a difficult question at the moment to point to concrete areas where we could cooperate because I think a lot of the potential for the EU to act or to become closer with Australia and to act more credibly in the Indo-Pacific region rests on its ability to sort of sort out its own internal problems and forge mm. consensus on an attitude towards China and then what... Have you seen that changing over the last, let's say, couple of years? I think it definitely has. We <laughs> saw it, and this is something Dario and I point to in the chapter, we saw things shifting in the EU even before the pandemic. You have Chinese initiatives like the Belt and Road Initiative, the 17 plus 1 initiative that were motivating concerns amongst the EU. What's, that the, what's, what's that initiative about? The 17 plus 1? 17 plus 1. It's a forum with China and Central and Eastern European right. countries. So that and the Belt and Road are seen as Chinese attempts to divide and rule by sort of delivering certain incentives to certain member states to perhaps toll a more favourable line with regards to China policy. But obviously with the pandemic, uh, wolf warrior diplomacy is something that has been on the radar for a lot of states and a lot of States have reacted 
or have not been a fan of how China conducted itself you during mean the European pandemic. States. Yes, yeah, well, we, it's not we, exclusively European states, no, no, but, sure, but yeah. it was quite it, concentrated. As you said, it was a lot of things were incidental, as COVID probably was, um, but they helped to to spread the light to certain underlining issues that maybe some European states were not as concerned about as Australia was in, in the past. So now these tendencies brought to light by the pandemic. And I think I've seen it. I think the main um, states to change attitudes were probably Spain and um, Italy. Uh, there, there was a very different perception at the start of the pandemic when China was trying to depict itself as a, a savior and a big brother, like helping out yep. these uh, struggling European countries while the EU was doing nothing about it and all the other rich European states were being very selfish and not helping out. Is that, was that a perception or was that kind of backed up by fact? I think the EU was late in acting mm. and there were certain moves by for example Germany that I didn't quite understand like blocking the export of masks right. um, and other material that was essential other countries have done this as well if I recall correctly yes yeah. but um, that you know Germany's our main neighbor by our I mean Italy um, <laughs> um, so you, you would expect a different approach it changed and then the EU didn't really want to depict itself um, uh, as much as China did as as this, you know, magnanimous sort of force into helping other countries. I think they even said, said that direct, uh, explicitly, right? I mean, we don't want to, let's say, congratulate ourselves with, with being so forthcoming. We want to, let's say, act behind the scenes. Yeah. But I think with the recovery fund, they have really come a long way. Uh, yes. So the EU came to an agreement on how to fund economic recovery and while there was previously a preference amongst perhaps northern EU member states to fund economic recovery by loans that would have to be paid back by some of the poorer member states, uh, there was some compromise achieved in terms of issuing some funding as grants, sort of acting to sort of redistribute a bit of wealth and sort of collectively raise European debt and take on the burden of funding the EU's economic recovery collectively. So we saw that as a very important sign for European unity. And as that coincides with a shifting view towards China, we think there's a lot of potential there for a more sort of unified and principled stance with regards to China. And that, you know, is a good sort of starting point for relations with Australia or other like-minded partners like Japan, uh, India, uh, to sort of advance a more sort of common or yeah unified agenda. So I think um, earlier this month there was the, maybe not the first, but I think one of the very first um, EU-China high-level dialogues um, with uh, President Xi and his, his European counterparts, the uh, and this is getting very complicated with the Europeans. It's kind of the president of the council, the president of the European Commission, and the presidency, which was Chancellor Matt Merkel. What, what did you read in that outcome statement? And we thought it followed this trajectory that we've been talking about where the EU has been trying to, to show a more unified and strong um, stance in the relationship with China where it fights more for its own values and is less willing to give in to China's requests. So especially on the economic side, they were um, trying to rebalance what the EU felt like it was always a relationship based on 
benefiting China more than um, the EU. Yeah, so bringing notions of reciprocity back into the relationship, um, improving EU market access in China and also sort of pushing China on some of the other issues around sustainable development, climate change uh, and human rights issues. So we did sort of see this um, enhanced emphasis on advancing and protecting the EU's interests and values. How did you see it, Bart? Well, I, I mean, I, I think I largely do agree with you. I think I think don't expect a revolution from Brussels or from the European Union. So I think, let's say, when when you kind of observe that it follows a, a trend that has already been ongoing for, for quite a number of years, I think that's um, the least you could expect. Uh, but what I find really interesting is kind of the change in, in, in discourse over the last um, two to three years when the new commission, the new European Commission started, which I think clearly pictures China as a partner, but also very much as a rival and in, in, in some cases as a competitor. Um, and I think having that language being part of the European discourse is, is a significant change to, to the past. So I think that's really an opportunity also for, for Australia. So before probably jumping to the last question, because I want to hear from you, um, what should our Australian diplomats know about the European Union, which you think they don't understand properly as of yet? I do really see kind of this change in discourse as an opportunity for greater alignment between, I think, some of the messages and, and the European. And also, I think the example of the, the COVID WHO resolution, I think, is surprised many, probably even, even, even including ourselves. And, and I hope, let's say, that that kind of re-encourages, uh, I think, a particular kind of our diplomats opposed to um, look for these very practical ways of cooperation where, where things are possible and where... Um, the EU and Australia can back themselves up. So final question, what's the biggest myth about the European Union that the Australians don't understand? I think they overestimate um, the power that the EU has over its member states. And they tend to look at uh, the German or French perspectives as European perspectives, but they don't always keep into account that there are so many voices within the EU. And that's why it's such a highly bureaucratic and difficult system because they need to agree before anything happens. So keeping that in mind, I think is very important. Yeah, I definitely agree with Daria. There is probably a limited understanding of how European foreign policy is actually made. And there are challenges there. It is easier to engage with a single member state, having to engage with so many different actors with different views definitely is a challenge. But as we emphasize in our chapter, there are many opportunities there for both sides. Great. And if I, if I want, can, can wrap up, I think in my, in my chapter about EU-Australia cooperation, um, I kind of suggested that if Australia really wants to take advantage of the European Union, that should also be matched with kind of resources back in Brussels, where, where it's the whole machinery of the European Union requires a pretty big investment in terms of um, young resources um, mm. and, and clear guidance from, from headquarters. Um, so um, to wrap that up, I think quite a few opportunities. And hopefully in two years from now, we can look back and say, well, we've moved from the conceptual to practical opportunities where the two most countries, Australia and European Union, um, have been able to find some common ground. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Thanks. 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 Finally, Emily French speaks to Dr. Hung Le Tu about the impacts of COVID-19 in Southeast Asia and whether the region will align more closely with Australia as a result of the pandemic. 
Hello, Huang. Uh, thank you so much for joining me and thank you for your contribution to ASPE's recent publication, After COVID-19, Volume 2. Hi, Emily. Thank you for having me and thank you for all your work behind Volume 1 and Volume 2. Uh, so today we are talking about things touched on in your chapter, post-COVID-19 Australia and Southeast Asia aligning more closely or drifting further apart. In your chapter, you point out that the deterioration of the US-China relationship has made it a lot harder for smaller and middle-sized countries to maintain a positive relationship with both major powers. Do you think the new reality created by the pandemic will or is bringing a growing sense of solidarity among the region's middle and smaller powers? or is it increasing diversity in their strategic priorities? I think the great power competition is very complex and it's going to keep being even more complex. And this is a reality that small and middle-sized countries will have to face. And particularly I discuss the Southeast Asians uh, in this context. And I think there is a certain recognition among Southeast Asian countries that they need to hang together or hang separately. And that has been articulated in a number of discussions and dialogues and platforms, whether bilaterally, informally, or formally um, on the uh, regional platforms, including regional meetings, uh, such as of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. But I think um, increasingly it will be more uh, challenging, it will require even more effort, and it's going to be continuous efforts because we don't see this great power competition going away anytime soon. It is a very uh, deep in structural uh, forces um, and cuts across very many, very many aspects, both you know tangible and intangible ones. So there will be uh, continuous challenges for all Southeast Asian countries to face, um, from uh, you know issues such as trade, economics to technology, uh, but also uh, in terms of how uh, US and China compete over prestige and position uh, in the global order and regional positions. So I think there is recognition in Southeast Asia because of the nature, their nature and their proximity, they need to um, be um, more closely aligned with each other. But I actually see that their um, strategic options might be further diversify because uh, of the very nature, very different um, nature of their countries and their national interest. What, uh, what is coming out um, as more or less a similar view on, on the great power competition across Southeast Asia is that I think rather than opting for China or US, I think that increasingly there is more agreement among the Southeast Asians to look for the third option uh, because none uh, of the great power, China and US, are at the moment displaying the great leadership quality that uh, can buy in all the Southeast Asians. So Huang, you mentioned in your chapter that most countries in Southeast Asia have been focused on their own domestic responses to COVID and the issue of whose fault it is hasn't been a point of great focus. Trump's politicising narrative and deliberate provocation of racial connotations hasn't been well received and Australia's push for an international inquiry has unfortunately often been seen in support of this narrative. Do you think the pandemic will push South Southeast Asian countries to look at aligning closer to China? and away from both Australia and the US? I think um, that uh, pursuit of the origins of, of the virus is legitimate. 
And, um, you know, there are a number of countries, a big list of countries that have supported this pursuit, as we've seen in the latest um, World Health Assembly meeting. Uh, but I think what was unfortunate with this uh, pursuit is the politicization of the very uh, inquiry to the origins. I think um, obviously everybody wants to know more about the virus. So COVID-19 is such a strange virus that we still don't understand a lot of aspects of it, including the, uh, what it does to the human body as we still discover a lot of um, uh, aspects that it affect human body and how it um, um, you know, influence into the, the mortality. Everybody wants to know more about the, the, um, the origin of it. But I think how uh, President Trump used it as, um, as you mentioned, very, you know, very racial connotations, but also um, you know, in his narrative overlapping with the different uh, ongoing blaming China for everything. Uh, that obviously didn't travel well in Asia, uh, especially with, with um, racial connotations and uh, in the countries where Asian uh, are the minorities, whether it's US, Australia or in Europe, uh, that has uh, had a bad effect on social cohesion. Uh, we have had reports on you know, racial discrimination linked to that narrative of blaming uh, Asians uh, or Chinese. Uh, so that wasn't well received uh, in Asia in particular. Australia push for that international um, uh, inquiry, I think, was seen um, from Southeast Asia in particular as a little bit um, undiplomatic in the way it was conducted. Um, as you know, Southeast Asians prefer more um, backdoor diplomacy, not so upfront. Of, of course, Australia is in a better position to pursue this inquiry than any uh, Southeast Asians. Uh, but I think um, the, the narrative and the way was done, um, unfortunately overlaps a lot with, with the Trump narrative, which um, Southeast Asians would be reluctant to support because they are afraid that um, with public cities supporting such narrative, that means that they are also supporting the blame China uh, narrative. And in both uh, informal and formal uh, platforms, I think uh, there was a, a preference of focusing on how to cooperate to address the virus, how to cooperate to address this public health pandemic, um, to limit uh, the death toll, to you know have a public health, um, even in the, uh, in the supply uh, chain of uh, health equipment, and also how to cooperate internationally on the on the recovery, economic recovery, social society recovery, rather than spending so much energy on um, the inquiry itself. So that's the narrative you get from Southeast Asia in general. Would you say COVID is slowing down China's pursuit of its strategic aims within the Southeast Asian region? I would actually say that it is uh, China's more um, active. Uh, I would even say China is hyperactive in um, during the pandemic time. Uh, this is, has been a trend that has been before COVID, and, and uh, there are you know thought uh, there are views that you know China would have been hyperactive whether COVID or not, with COVID pandemic or not. Uh, but we see the hyperactivities in South China Sea, in Taiwan, Hong Kong, and even in India with the borders with India. So you you see. Um, 
tensions, uh, you know, uh, high tensions in, in a number of so-called regional hotspots. Um, and China is really flexing the muscles. It conducts multiple uh, exercises in the maritime domain uh, simultaneously, uh, something that it hasn't done before. And on many fronts, it is actually um, more active uh, than before. Uh, and I would say that China sees pandemic as an opportunity to really showcase both, you know, um, its ambitions as well as taking advantage um, of uh, the global and regional situation. So I wouldn't say it's slowing down. It's actually um, whether it is successful or not is another story. But I, I do think that there are uh, uh, some aspect that um, uh, some evidence that Beijing is trying to take advantage of the current pandemic. And just a final question, uh, under President Trump's leadership and policies, there has been significant shift in Southeast Asian sentiment towards the US. With the election on the horizon, I thought I'd ask about some of your thoughts on how the outcome may influence geopolitics within the Southeast Asia region. I think a lot of people are waiting for uh, the pandemic, uh, sorry, again. A lot of people are waiting for uh, the elections in, in November. Um, Southeast Asia in general, um, has rather um, been not very supportive of many of Trump administration's uh, policies in the region. And in general, um, the public perception of Trump uh, has been very good. Um, the regional surveys of uh, elite opinions show that vast majority of Southeast Asia thinks that Trump's administration engagement in Southeast Asia has deteriorated, both in terms of quantity and quality in particular. Um, and I think, uh, and that's with exceptions that as I mentioned, some countries um, uh, that Southeast Asians have very different views uh, on many issues, including uh, the US role. Uh, and for example, Vietnam stands out in, in having very different uh, opinion from the rest of Southeast Asia. So I think in general, there is a lot of expectations from the November elections. Um, in general, uh, President Trump's administration's policies were um, received uh, with quite a level of skepticism in Southeast Asia in a uh, regional survey of public uh, perceptions. I think most of Southeast Asians see the US um, engagement in the region as deteriorating, both in terms of quality as well as quantity. Um, and, and of course, there is a nuance to that view and Vietnam stands out from the crowd. Um, but in general, there is uh, this view that US is interested in Southeast Asia because of the competition with China, not because of Southeast Asia itself. Uh, but uh, the studies and surveys also show that this perception can uh, change after the election and most people expect change after November. Um, I'm a little bit worried that it's actually not going to go away no matter who wins, even if Biden wins, uh, as many people put a lot of hope on Biden. And I think there will be a change if that really happens. Um, it, and he might be much more diplomatic. He's had a track record in working uh, in global affairs and you know, being uh, also experienced with the US pivot and rebalance to Southeast Asia to Asia. He's got very competent uh, advisors, uh, Asia competent advisors. So there will be a lot of change. But I, I think, uh, as I mentioned in the 
very beginning, the great power competition is on structural level. So even uh, if we have a change in personnel, uh, in, in terms of personality of leaders, uh, there will remain a number of uh, structural factors that will uh, that will mean that US-China competition will continue regardless of who is uh, in power on the global. Well, thank you so much for your time, Huang. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Emily. That's all we have time for this week on policy, guns and money. We'll be back with another episode next week. Thanks for listening.